you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Roger Guillette, visual effects supervisor and second unit director at Industrial Light and Magic. From the early Harry Potter films to Revenge of the Sith, we go through his journey to The Force Awakens, The Rise of Skywalker, and so much more. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 59, Roger Guillette. Well, before even Star Wars, I'd love to just talk about you and and getting started in visual effects and your early inspirations what was kind of the impetus to to dive into all of this i i mean i was very fortunate you know i mean there was the sort of the happenstance i mean i think you you want to find something that you love and when you're at school we weren't very well off you know so um you know there weren't a tremendous number of opportunities you know i mean many of my friends didn't even go to college you know Mm -hmm. And, you know, you are, I think people are a little restricted by their own experiences and obviously the experiences of their parents. But what really set it off was I was just very interested in animation. I didn't get to go to art school. I I did manage to go to art school a bit later on, but I was just very interested in people like Saul Bass and people like that. And, and, And it was really just a very much a sort of a hobby to me, you know what I mean? Just like an interest. And what's fascinating to me as well is, you know, way before the days of the internet, it's really, really hard to, or it's hard to imagine now how you get interested in something and you can pursue that. And really, that's what I mean by your, I mean, this all sounds very heavy going, but it's just interesting that basically the only resources you have are the people that you're, you know, in your circle and your parents and who they know, and then things like the local library, you know, you know, you go to the local library and you ask about Saul Bass or something, and they all look at you like you're a freaking nutter, you know, Um, but, but. It was just it was an interesting thing for me and I and I was interested in photography. It was all it was all very small, you know, and I just could never imagine the idea of working in the movies. I mean, we were a family, we rented a black and white TV set. I mean that's and my dad always when when he was around, he said, Can you imagine the idea that you've worked on a movie? You know, right. alone the forty odd or something movies that I've worked on. So I'm incredibly grateful and very and very, very lucky and I guess and making this a really extended and rather uninteresting answer to your question. You know, like some things in life, you just fall in step with something. And a friend of mine, I was I was playing music. That was really one of the things that I, I was doing. And I had a terrible music career. And I was just really, as a young person, just wasting a lot of time, but having a great time playing bands and doing stupid things. And um, a friend of mine said, you can't believe it. The British government are actually paying you to go back to college and study computers. I was like, what? And <laughs> it turned out that the, the amount of money that they were willing to pay you um, to, to learn about computers, you know, because obviously there was a time in the, in the early 80s where, you know, the computer was a new thing. I mean, it sounds crazy, but, um, you know, they wanted to train people to learn how to use them. And so I, I did this course at UCL in London, University College London, and I, I, you know, I could pay my rent. And I was really interested in using computers to draw pictures. And you've got, you've got to bear in mind that even at that moment, um, email, right? I remember someone talking to me about email, this new idea called email, <laughs> and saying, 
um, you can send messages to people <laughs> on the computer. And I was like, but I, what do you mean? I have to come in and log on to the computer at the college to get a message from my friend who could just call me. It was just, it sounded so mad. It's so difficult to sort of try and understand the context of all of that. But ultimately, it what it did was it it really got an interest in computers. And of course, then you had to basically code and you could start drawing pictures and making images with computers. And after i have done that, and they were so trivial, you know, in terms of what you could do. But because I was interested in Saul Bass and people like that who were using, doing very graphic-y kind of images, it was kind of, it was more in that kind of zone. Um, but um, ultimately, I just started looking in the newspaper for jobs and a graphics company had, they were interested, they had bought a computer that they were hoping to use to generate images with. And they, you know, you had to be able to code, you know, and it was so, it was so bizarre. It's just one of those things you turn up, you get on really well with the person you're talking to and they say, well, let's give it a go. And the next thing you know, you're working in the you're generating images on a computer for commercials or idents on TV, and you don't, you don't even begin to realize how effing lucky you are that you just happened to turn up on that day. And at that point, you know, I didn't have an arts background. I had I had I had more of a design engineering background, and but it was no one nowadays. Of course, people go to college to study computer animation. There was no such thing. You know, like in London, I think there were probably eight or nine of us doing that, you know, and it was really, it was a really interesting time. You know, it was around about the time to be on it. I mean, all, obviously, obviously all the big, you know, things were happening, starting to happen in America, you know, but, um, and that's how I found my way into it. And, and, and obviously that was a very, uh, you know, it's funny trying to sort of recollect, recollect all those steps and everything, but, um, and maybe not the most interesting story, but I think so many people's lives, you know, you just, those funny moments where you make a decision, you know, how easily it would have been for me not to have read that ad in the newspaper, because that's the way people applied for jobs. You, there was an ad in the newspaper, but I did, and I turned up, and I, you know what I mean? And, and suddenly I've been doing this for, you know, well, I've been at ILM for 26 years. I've probably been doing this for, you know, well, 35, 35 years or something. Yeah. Um, so it's just one of those things. I was I, uh, every now and again, you know, you 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 uh, you kick yourself and go, wow, that you were just you were just one of those lucky guys, you know. The jump you made to to cross the pond and, and come to America first, PDI, then then ILM, and what made you want to to make that move? You know, in London, it was just the height. You know, it was all it was obviously all commercials. The film industry was absolutely dead in England, and you know. But there were a lot of people that had been involved in the movies. And I remember we used to do commercials with Ridley Scott and people like that. You used to go out to Pinewood, you know, it was mm-hmm. so exciting. And the idea that these walls, you know, had witnessed all these fabulous movies. And you would work with people that had worked on movies, you know, and could talk about um, their experiences. And it was absolutely fascinating to me. So mm-hmm. that, that kind of crossover, when you started working on commercials, and a lot of the people involved were from the movies. And that was fascinating to me. And then suddenly we started working in London. There were a couple of um, animated movies. Um, who was, well, Amblimation 
came to London. They set up in London, and we got a bit involved with them because at that time, you know, um, anything really complex animation, hand drawn. We we did a train. I remember a train sequence, and of course, drawing it was an absolute nightmare and incredibly time consuming. So we, you know, we 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 animated this train and all those sorts of things, and they used it as a guide. You know, all the all these sort of things, and so suddenly you started hearing about people using computer animation in movies. You know, you'd hear about ILM working on, you know, the abyss or something like that. <laughs> and a lot of the tools and equipment that we were using were, but you know, developed by people in America. And we were, we were actually writing a lot of our own software, you know, in, in truth, we would, I mean, that's the way it was. You, you wrote a lot of those kinds of tools, but there were some Americans in the office. And then one day, there was no, the other interesting thing is there were no freelance people, right? That idea of, of being freelance just didn't exist. You just worked for a company. And I think that was true even in America. You know, that the concept of freelance was more of a film thing, you know. But I remember um, a, a friend of mine said he'd been to America and he'd got, he'd got this job at this company called PDI, who, of course, I'd, know, I, I'd heard of. And I said, really? He said, it's unbelievable. It's like, you know, it was kind of like the Wild West. He said, they are just desperate for people who've got any kind of, um, you know, history or, or experience doing, doing this kind of work. And I said, really? And he's, so he said, well, you know, Seagraph's coming up. So I went out to Seagraph and he said, yeah, they've all got these, um, you know, um, recruitment suites and you go up there and you talk to them. And, and of course, I spoke to um, a number of companies. They all offered me a job because they were just desperate to get people working on these productions. At that time, PDI was considerably bigger than ILM and really doing a lot more work, um, uh, you know, well, they had it was a much bigger organization and company and had more of a background in in um, you know using computers for imagery, as opposed to the the film side. But I you know I worked there and obviously there's some fabulous people there. I mean when I worked there, you know um, uh, people like Andrew Adamson, you know who went on to direct a number of movies, and there were a whole host of people. You know um, Jennifer Bell was one of the producers. I mean she's running the the visual effects department at, at Universal. So it's you know, it's interesting historically to think back to those times. But, you know, I worked with them and I had a great time. But, you know, ILM started to, I, you know, we're obviously became the company. And um, around about, yeah, uh, uh, you know, after a couple of years, I, I switched and, and went to work at ILM. And, 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 you know, obviously I've been there for 26 years or something. But it was incredibly exciting. And, of course, it seemed hard then. Yeah. And you keep on saying to yourself, well, you know, when when does that curve level out? And, and apparently, those were the good years. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we lived. We somehow or another, I, I I lived through some version of the golden age of, of of that process because obviously now it's become a much more global business. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it it, it it's just changed the way that everything works. And obviously, in those days. L.A. was really the center of the filmmaking business. I moved to America and, you know, you worked in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and so many of those huge companies like Digital Domain, you know, Digital Domain started in Rhythm and Hughes and all these companies who are now basically all out of business, you know, they were, they, they were great times, just as it is now, to be honest with you. It's just, it's just different, you know. It's just on a larger scale. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a more global thing. And I think, 
I think the part of the business that's the part that's exciting is you get to work with people throughout the world, which is absolutely fantastic. And you and you probably, you know, but the part that's not so great is that you don't get to sp really spend any personal time with those people. It's kind of like me talking to you in Dallas, which is, I guess, the way, well, especially at the moment, isn't it, with everything going on, it's the way that we now communicate. But, um, you know, the, the visual effects business has become more of that thing where you're talking to people on the telephone or, the, or, or doing video conferencing and talking about the work rather than just being in the same room with them. And I, and I miss, I, I miss that aspect of it. But as I said, the, the positive side of it is that there are so many wonderful people in the world and you, and, and, you know, ILM, which has offices in so many uh, parts of the world, it's always a joy, you know, to, to work with these people that have all sorts of different backgrounds and everything, you know, I mean, your early work at ILM is some of those foundational computer-generated movies that we kind of look back on now as a golden age, like Casper, Dragonheart. Uh, yeah. What was it like taking what you'd learned from London and then at PDI and then trying to implement it on a larger and larger scale? Casper, we don't even think about really anymore, but it was one of those first yeah. major characters that was completely computer-generated. Dragonheart, of course, yeah. incredible, incredible special effects. Yeah. Uh, what were you learning from that and what were kind of your experiences through those? Those, uh, projects. I, I I think the 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 thing that I really remember. Number one, it was incredibly exciting, you know, and, and as it as the work is still now. But it was a different kind of excitement. And I and I what I mean by that is that you had people that were genuinely innovating at this very kind of different kind of scale. You know what I mean? Now I think you have a kind of you know, the innovation is more sort of iterative, you know, and it, it's the, the tiny steps and people say, oh, yeah, this rendering, it's just a bit, you know, we're using this. And, but it's a, there are smaller increments. And in those days, the excitement was just the sheer scale of the jumps. You know, suddenly, you know, you actually had a particle system, you know. You, you you know we did I remember we did we did Dragonheart we didn't even have a particle we didn't use a particle system I mean uh, you know anything like that for any kind of effects you had to come up with some way of doing something that sort of looked as though it was a particle system you know but suddenly on Twister you know which I worked on I was one of the digital soups on you actually had a particle system and we were building that system and trying to make it, you know, doing all those things and trying to figure out how does it shadow. And so they were, they're, they're just big, they're bigger jumps, you know, I mean, and you witness these things. I mean, um, you know, ambient occlusion, you know, I mean, I could throw, I mean, I don't know how really interested you are in some of the granularity of this, but there were some significant things. I mean, I remember, um, um, you know, uh, Stefan Fangmeier, um, came up with the with the concept of I mean I, I shared an office with Stefan Fangmeier who was a very very smart man and you know what was supervised supervised all sorts of shows there and very generous to me you know and I'd work I worked with him quite a bit and one evening he just came up when they he just came up with this concept of um, occlusion you know and and whoever ended up getting the credit for it. He was the one that came up with the basic idea that, well, and this is probably way too granular for you, but if you did a, a single pass ray trace on an object, then it gave, you, it gave you an occlusion pass that you could then map with anything. And it was just like, it, he, he just came up with this. And I remember I sat there in the evening and wrote the shader. So basically, if you can imagine, if I explain that a little bit better, 
So, for example, in the early days, when you did a reflection, if you had something that was reflective, it didn't have any occlusion in the reflection because you couldn't ray trace. So, in other words, what you were doing was you were rendering a reflection. And at that time, Render Man had no ability to... So, if, if something... If something, it, it didn't account for any shape of the object. It just, it just took the surface and created a reflection. Okay, but of course the real world doesn't work like that. If you have an, an overhang on an object or something, it's just gonna see the shadow of the overhang. It's not gonna see the bigger world reflection. So one evening, we had just got the first copy of Mental Ray, and Stefan had worked a lot with those guys. They were a, a German company that did Mental Ray, and it was a ray tracer. But of course, it was a separate renderer. But then he said, well, okay, what we can do is we can render a single black, and it was extremely expensive in terms of the amount of time, but you can render a single black and white image of the occlusion, and then just simply take your reflection and mat it with this black and white mat, and there you have a reflection occlusion. And, and that kind of idea, it's absolutely, completely obvious, and in fact, it's at the very heart of what became ambient occlusion, um, which sort of was an ILM sort of invention. But it's really weird when you think, I mean, if you're, you're a little bit geeky and you're just sitting in an office and somebody says, hey, why don't we, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like that kind of feeling like, oh, this is an amazing idea. Yeah. Well, 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 it's called a wheel, you know, and you yeah. What? You know, well, we'll make a circle and then you put this thing and, and, and honestly, you can roll and you can put heavy things on it. You can wheel them down the road. You go, oh, wow. OK. But when you're it literally felt like that, some of those moments were like that. And so that made it so exciting. So um, and there were, of course, there were some super smart people, you know, Joe Letary, you know, was there and um, all of these people that were just, you know, really in innovative and just would think of these things. And so when I first went there, I was just mind blown by the, by that kind of um, talent, you know, that, that sort of existed at the, that company. But I think more than anything, the thing that I remember was the way that people talked about the work in a different way. And it was a really important understanding for me because when you worked on commercials or idents, people didn't really talk about the emotional quality of the work as much as they did or the story, and maybe that's a better way of putting it, quite as much, because it's not, it's, they're slightly different things. So suddenly when you have a review, you were having a review with Ken Ralston or, you know, Dennis Muren, and they talked about it more like a movie maker. And I had never, I don't think I'd ever really, I mean, obviously I'd worked at PDI, we'd had a bit of that, but at ILM, that was really magnified, just their experience of movie making. So suddenly it, it, it really it made my world a lot bigger, you know. Well, when you moved then to doing more visual effects supervision and, and doing things like D-Day of yeah. Sam Pirate Ryan or the Harry Potter films, what was it like then interfacing a little bit more with, let's say, Spielberg or Koran or whatever it was? Like, how did they yeah. approach visual effects then and how were you kind of uh, adding to your process? So I think number one is that, you know, you're, you're terrified of all of these people, of course, you know, and extremely anxious and nervous about all of them. And that's, fortunately, that's something that diminishes as you get older and more experienced, you know, but you just don't have the, um, the confidence that, you know, you obviously develop. But um, the first, you know, and, and, and being on set, I mean, the thing that was really helpful to me is that 
I had quite a lot of un understanding of various disciplines because I worked in commercials and commercials were a microcosm of the, the technical aspects of making a movie. You'd have costume, you'd have people that were, you know, a paint, you know, all of that. So I had some understanding of that and I understood a little bit about cameras. But what I did do was I just started learning a lot more about camera equipment and trying to understand about and I, I so I, I made a big deal out of of course I was in really interested in photography but I didn't know that much about the way film cameras worked in that way so I spent a lot of time just trying to learn about that so that I felt more confident about those things but of course when you step on set and, and Spielberg or something you know um, you know when I did um, Stefan Fangmar, as I said, was very uh, kind to me and very generous. And he he um, he actually ended up doing uh, a force to be reckoned with. And he ended up getting booked on two different shows. I think one was Small Soldiers and the other was Saving Private Ryan. And my daughter and he said, "I'll tell you what, you you do one of them, and I'll I'll do the other one." And I think I ended up doing some of the some of the groundwork on small soldiers and then my daughter was born so Stefan came over to England and he worked on saving private Ryan for a couple of weeks or something and then I I took over I mean in you know he he never really did anything on on saving private Ryan but I, I it, was, it was it was a pretty terrifying experience to sort of be interfacing with Spielberg you know right. this, this kind of god and um and to add to that, you know, he was really a force of nature at that point. You know, I mean, he was probably, I bet he was like 50 or something like that. And really at the height of his powers and confidence and everything. So, and he was interfacing with everyone you can imagine. You know, the prime minister was calling him and it was just like, wow, you know, who's going to turn up next? But, you, you, you know, it was fairly terrifying doing that work. But obviously, you know, you just learn through your experiences with with these movies and 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 you and and the really the, the the really delightful and really amazing thing about this business is every director is different you know they really are and they're all in generally incredibly talented generally i should say you know and they all but they all and i've been lucky to to work with some great ones but they're often they're very they're quite often they're different kinds of people you know quarrel was very different um, than say someone like Chris Columbus or you know JJ is you know they're all they all have differences some of them I always feel that some of them are writers who are directors who become directors and others are somehow you know you they're more visual but the ones that I think are really exceptional are the people that are both mm -hmm. and, you know if you think of every great director they generally are very visually based and they're great writers, you know. And so you have people like Alfonso, you have people like J.J. Abrams, you know, Spielberg, who is a great story guy. They're the really interesting ones. And of course, you want to be challenged, don't you? You be inspired by them and um, and, and for them to come up with these sort of things and you kind of go, oh, and, and you know. And of course, you know, um, JJ, for example, is a great one for that kind of stuff, and, and we've got to know each other very well. But Alfonso was definitely like that. You know, he, he knew less about visual effects when I worked with him than he does now, for sure. Right. He was incredibly ambitious in the images that he wanted to create, you know, and, um, and that was really 
that was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, that, you, whoa, I have no idea, you know, you literally were kind of going, okay, so what does that really mean? You know, I mean, when I look at, not that I've seen it for a long time, but Harry Potter 3, you know, um, yeah, there were some really complicated aspects to that that I'm very, very proud of, you know, um, you know, things like where you're going from, you know, where the, the time turner, for example, you know, just trying to figure those kinds of things out. Like, how do you do that? How do you wind back time? And, you know, it was in, it was in the days where, you know, I was saying this to somebody else. It's like now, I think generally, you don't have to plan so much. You just don't because the tool better. You, uh, it, it just means that you're, you, you have more ability to worry about the work rather than kind of, but there's some fun in the planning and some preparation in the thought process because what you're really doing is everyone's thinking about the same idea and taking that idea and making it better. You know what I mean? So there's this sort of, there's this sort of journey of an idea that um, is really, and, and that means that it's planned out and, and you have time to sort of think about it. And, and so some of those things, it's not kind of like, hey, we just, we're going to do this. And it's more like, hey, I've got an idea. And, and you think about it and you have a moment before you actually shoot it to really turn it into something better if you think it's not very good. Yeah. And, and that was just part of the process. And when I think about, you know, the time turn, which is an interesting moment, is when we start, you know, we had, um, you know, we had to use a motion control camera, you know, because, you know, and, and, you know, you're doing shots with the kids and that turns into, I think we did three or four miniatures, you know, different scaled miniatures, you know, to shoot, you go through the clock and you go down the thing and, the, you know, and you just, and it's tremendous amount of thought and planning. Um, but there's something really satisfying about that when you see it on the screen and everyone kind of goes, oh, wow, you know. Yeah, uh, it's funny that you're talking about all of this because I literally just watched Azkaban last night. We're rewatching all of the Harry Potter since we have nothing else to do here in quarantine. Right. Yeah. And what I love about the the Potter films, it's a time capsule of this visual effects work. You start with Sorcerer's Stone and you end with the Fantastic Beasts, and it's the same world, but you can see the evolution yeah. of visual effects every two years. You know, pretty. Yeah, yeah. It's it 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 is it is fascinating. You know because on the first Harry Potter that I did with Rob Legato, you know, I mean, Chris was not, um, I mean, he's a lovely guy and a great writer and a great storyteller, but he wasn't really a visual kind of director, you know? Um, and so, so a lot of the challenges of that movie, I think Rob and I sort of invented ourselves, you know, um, but it was still, it was just a huge undertaking, massive scale. And of course, immensely proud of that too. But Alfonso, you know, was, you know, exploring this idea of the single shot. And of course, in, in visual effects at that time, that was the sort of thing that you, you know, was the stuff that gave you heart palpitations. Right. Because you actually had to scan it, you know. Right. I mean, you had to deal with those sorts of things, and it sort of seems so daft. But, um, I mean, I even remember one of the shots we did at um, uh, on Saving Private Ryan was when they were walking along a ridge, and there were flashes of light behind them. I remember we actually only could, I think we only could comp that once before we filmed it out. I mean, that was just, it was just mad, yeah. you know, just because of, of the length of the shot. So um, Alfonso, of course, with all of his, you know, um, sort of ideas about single shots. You, so you had a lot of that kind of stuff happening at that time. But it was it was absolutely fascinating. You know, he's, he's such an inventive 
guy and so visual and uses those things so well to tell the story. I, I still think that Azkaban is probably one of the best Harry Potters and certainly the one where it really kicked in, I think, in terms of using a lot of these ideas to to tell the story so well, you know. Um, but it was it was also, you know, we did a lot of miniature work. We did a lot of the a lot of the the digital stuff we did then. I mean, it was yeah, it was hard going. I mean, we built the hippogriff as a as an animatronic puppet, and yeah. you know, it was at that time where um, I still remember when the um, you know the computer film company CFC they. Um, they did the hippogriff, and I still remember their their management team coming to me one day and going, "We, at the current rate, will not be able to render all of the shots because the hippogriff was just it was just a massive undertaking." Right. We went away and had to come up with the solution. I mean, it's just like a a real thing. It's like right. someone saying, "We cannot paint this bridge before the opening ceremony." You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so what do we do, you know, and somehow or another you find a way of achieving it. But, you know, they, 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 it was just a different kind of, yeah, it's different. I mean, it, it, of course, it's just, it, as you say, the evolution. I mean, Star Wars is like that, isn't it? And even, and even on a bigger scale, I think Star Wars is, 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 is really about the history of visual effects, but certainly Harry Potter for sure, too. I love that you mentioned the miniatures and, and having to blend the practical with with the, the computer-generated effects. And I think one of the things that we take for granted, especially with your work on Revenge of the Sith and that whole prequel era, is the yeah. amount of miniatures and practical effects yeah. that went into those movies. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about your work on Revenge of the Sith and maybe even things that you did then that you might have done on Force Awakens and, and Rise of Skywalker 20 years later. Well, you know, you're working with two... You know, that, that, that's kind of the fun of working with these different people, what their take or perspective is on something. And, you know, I got to know George fairly well working at ILM in that period and, and obviously got to know him very well working on Revenge of the Sith. And, and you know, he is such an amazing innovator. You know, I mean, in truth, what he was trying to do, which everybody who does that kind of thing who's on some version of a cutting edge are always it's it's not going to be an easy process is it it's not necessarily going to be totally successful by definition because you're le you know and to him the idea which is what we did kind of on seven which was actually go to locations right because if you really in my brain anyway not that i've thought about this too much but the difference really is that George wanted to turn his version of filmmaking. He, he felt that, I mean, in all honesty, that the digital world and the blue screen world allowed you this advantage that you didn't actually have to go to locations. You didn't have to do the things that were a mechanical burden to the filmmaker. You didn't have to do that. And that's what he thought the future was. And, and to, he's absolutely right. He, you, know, you know, it's some version... Of course, there is a tremendous convenience to that kind of process. And so what he was trying to do around the time, we, you know, John and I did Revenge of the Sith, was he had just sort of distilled that down. Of course, you know, he'd done the previous two movies. But I, I'm still very proud of what we did on Revenge of the Sith. And I think when people talk about miniatures, what kills me is that the truth is we did more miniatures on that movie than I think pretty much any movie in the history of ILM. Right. I've you know, we had the longest single 
um, uh, miniature setup, I think, in the history of ILM was on that was on that show. And people always talk about, oh my God, the prequels. It's all digital. It's all CG. You're going, no, dude. It, it, you, you know, and that, and and it, the, the 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 complication of that argument. You know, people say, well, miniatures are so fantastic. I wish we had more miniatures. Then watch the prequels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially especially Sith, because you know. Um, it, it's packed with it. But I guess what people are reacting to in terms of the approach was the very fact that, um, you know, there isn't really very much sort of, um, you know, location work. Right. It's, it's essentially, you know, with actors, it's a blue or green screen world. And that's really the antithesis. And, and I think to me anyway, as, a, as somebody obviously that um, uh, just enjoys the whole, every aspect of movie making. And I think, I think I tell I tell anyone that if you're involved in making a movie, the first thought in your brain all the time should be about the story. You know, whatever discipline you are, you know, if you're the costumer, the prop guy, or the special effects guys, what can I do in these shots to try and enhance the story? And um, you know, obviously, one of those things to me is that there's a there's if you look at those original movies, they are really based around or they set the dna of the movies in this kind of concept that they're real places they're less fantastical and so i think if you if you like the original movies you know four five and six they're generally or certainly four set the tone of yeah you're in you're in tunisia but you know or wherever you are or you know and uh, or, or the redwood forest in, in marin you know but it they were re they were real places and somehow tonally that just set a kind of style to me and to me when you're doing visual effects the, the very foundation of everything you do is about light and light comes from the location you know i think it's very interesting because then moving into the sequels and let's say even the marketing of force awakens was a lot of real sets practical effects right it was, it was kind of a, a mantra but when you look at the movie and you look at the work that was put into it it is Obviously, there are practical effects in the movie, but it's the blending, and it's almost a a restraint between the the practical and the visual effects working yes. together. Yeah. Um, what was your your thought process going into Force Awakens, mimicking a little bit of in terms of locations and and everything from the originals, but but bringing it into a, a modern era? Yeah, and I think that's that's what you know our intent was was to. Get still get that sort of the flavor of those early movies, and you know, so JJ and I were both very adamant at trying, about trying to, you know, run with that really that that big idea. You shoot you shoot on locations, okay. And the thing that the really bigger change in the technology was how can you, um, what could you do digitally to try and make every aspect of it kind of feel that same way? You know, could you um, you know, could you build a version? Because there's a there's a weird thing that happens is that obviously you shoot a miniature and it doesn't necessarily mean that it looks any more real than anything else. It might look like a miniature. You know, when people see a puppet, they're going, yes, it's a it, it's a real object, but it's not actually. Do you believe that it's actually a real thing in that real space? You know, I mean, I, I don't want to break anyone's illusion here, but you know, obviously. Yoda is a puppet, you know, and yeah, yeah <laughs> whoa, <laughs> um, it's, and it's just, it's interesting because what I was trying to do was take that idea to a place where you go, everything here is real. 
if I'm a kid and I'm watching this, I think that everything is actually happening. So how do you do everything you can to enhance that, that aspect of the process? And to me, it's like you use visual effects where you can take a practical thing and you can actually make it more real. And, I, when I, and my definition of real is something that you believe is, is absolutely photorealistic or, or real in that world. So that was our, was our, game, was our game plan. And, and I think fortunately for us, you know, a lot of the technology that was being developed by ILM around, around the time of Force Awakens was about more photorealistic environments. And certainly the, the, a lot of the stuff the, the, the more organic kind of effects work that you started being able to do, you know, for example, when the, you know, the, the Millennium Falcon takes off, you know, all the dust and the, all of that sort of debris and everything was something that was just really getting to a place where it started and you could light it in a more photoreal way. You could do a lot more indirect lighting. So, I mean, that's only four or five years ago, isn't it? But that was kind of a big change. So I think it was intent, it really satisfying because people didn't really talk a lot about the visual thing, you know, the digital kind of work. I mean, it's disappointing that people aren't really talking about your work so much, but they were always talking about the practical aspect of everything. But the truth is a lot of what they were talking about was what we did digitally. And I think there were 22 or 2300 shots in that movie and many things that people thought were, were, were real things were actually digital. But, but philosophically, it was, it was based around a real place. So when we shot, you know, we were in the desert, you know, in the Middle East for the for the village, you know, at the beginning of uh, the movie and then, you know, the Millennium Falcon chase and everything. We had something to base it on. And suddenly everything you're building is based around a real world. And that reference is absolutely, it's Im impossible to calculate the benefit of actually being able to go to a real place, very much like the speed of chase in nine, and photograph it and build it and then go, yeah, this is, this is what this place looks like. And now it's a different kind of challenge. You just want to make it look natural and, and, and interesting. But the truth is, you know, I don't think many people probably looked at the speed of chase in nine. They, some people, I'm sure, wondered about a few shots here or there. But the whole thing is digital, you know. And, but, but you're benefiting from having gone there and shot the, the green screen elements because of the light. The light is the light of Jordan. You know, and, and that's something that, you know, JJ and I, I always say, let's, let's just go there, go there, you know, yeah. what happens, you know, um, and, and that's my passion is just trying to make sure, because I think it's like, it's like building a foundation of a house in the wrong direction and then I'm never figuring, you know, always cursing the fact that the, you never get sunrise in your bedroom or something. Yeah, because it's, it's it, you, did, you, you said, you know, everything was the wrong way around. And I think light is like that to me. If you want something to look the way you want it to look, then shoot it in as best light you can, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, your relationship with JJ is so interesting to me, especially, you know, starting with MI3 and then moving to the Star Treks and then being second unit director on, on Force Awakens. How has it been working with him as he's evolved through his craft and kind of side by side as you've been pushing this visual effects element? Well, uh, you know... Obviously, I, I, I owe him an enormous debt of gratitude. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I had already worked on quite a few movies by the time, you know, he got in touch with me. And he was a big fan of Alfonso's and, and Azkaban. And he got in touch with me around that time. And he said, I'm really, 
one thing I've learned about him is he's so, you know, he's so curious about things and curious about and knows so much about different aspects of the techniques in films. One of those being visual effects. He's just really fascinated by it. So, um, you know, we had lunch together and he said, you know, I might be doing this movie. And if I do, you know, would you be interested? And of course, of course I did. And what's fascinating is that, you know, he was so knowledgeable, but really, you know, that was his first movie. And yeah. what's fascinating about him is pretty much always the smartest guy in the room. Um, yeah. And he's got the most energy and he's got, he's got this tremendous sort of spirit about him. And he challenges you with all these sort of ideas. And, and but, you know, it, it's a, it's a great, I mean, you want to work with people that you really admire and you want to work with people that you, you know, that, friends you know and um you know there's a bunch of us that from that first movie have, have ended up working a lot of stuff together like dan mindle and tommy gormley and all these kinds of michael kaplan all these kinds of people and and you know it, it is a kind of a more makes it more of a family but he is a, definitely a force to be reckoned with and he has tremendous imagination he knows enough about visual effects to um you know to really understand what it is without it getting kind of too silly or, or, or feeling, you know, I always say to him, this is what I want to do. And then sometimes we have these very silly, we have some hilarious arguments about things, the best way to do something, you know, but he, he, um, it's, it's always in the most positive sort of spirit, but, um, generally we just have a good laugh, you know, and it, it's one of those things that I've learned so much about filmmaking through him and, you know, when you shoot something yourself, you're really, there's an ownership about what you're doing. And that's why I love doing second unit because, I mean, in truth, you're, it's like you're authoring this thing and then you, you know, you, you get to see it all the way through to the end. This is, this is the idea. You, you know, you were panning across the desert and the thing comes in and that happens and, and you can, when you're when you're shooting it, you've got that. You're not trying to say to somebody else, "Okay, pan a bit faster." No, no, you should be going up for the missile. You know, you're not doing that. You're you're, you're actually you're doing it yourself. You know, um, within a, within a range. You know, with the other hundred people that you need to do it. So it has a different kind of feeling. And doing shooting the material and gets you closer to the filmmaker too. You know, because obviously what you're trying to do as a second unit director and as a visual effects supervisor. Is the whole movie isn't it? Is is it's all the same movie? You know, everything. It's it. It should feel like it's all a unified piece, and so it helps you tremendously in terms of the shot design and all those kinds of things that you're working with. And anyone that I've worked with as a second unit director, you know, you want to learn their style because you want your shot to look as though they shot it. You know, right. one of the uh, people that you've been working closer and closer with, especially in in Rise of Skywalker is Neil Scanlon and The Creature Shop. Yeah. And one of the things that really sticks out to me, especially in the documentary and all the things that we've learned about the movie since, is kind of working hand-in-hand. Maz Kanata is a great example, right? Going from a, a strictly digital creature to a practical animatronic on set. Working with him closely to give them a frame of reference, but also make it hopefully usable in the actual final product. Yeah, yeah. What what has that been like for you? And are there any challenges that come come into that? Well, I think number well, the first thing you have to remember is Neil is you know an incredibly talented guy, and more than anything, isn't is honest and pragmatic, you know, and so he really understands, you know, the the, the benefit of doing that. And that's why I love him, 
because mm-hmm. he's going to give you an honest opinion about something. We're, we're going to be able to do this, but we're not going to be able to do that. This is going to be an issue, but maybe that's going to look cool. If I do this, does this help you? It, it's an honest conversation about how to get the best results on the screen. And that's a really important part about filmmaking. It's not about you. It's about us. You know, like it's about the collective. And with Neil, you know, the, 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 one of the issues that I think the digital work has always suffered with is that, you know, you cannot represent that creature to, if you've got a bunch of actors, you know, all right, the simplest example being, okay, how do you get their eye line right? You know, okay, well, you have a tennis ball on the end of a stick or whatever. Now, but they're all imagining something different, you know what I mean? And sometimes the benefit of doing something practically is everyone sees what is actually physically you're trying to achieve. So certainly on a movie like Star Wars, you know, we took the attitude, okay, we know that that serpent's head is not going to, the sand serpent thing, you know, the vexus is not going to necessarily work. But there's going to be moments where it's going to be more silhouetted. A lot of it might actually work. But more importantly, JJ could line up the shots. This is where I am. I'm going to be on them and then pan up to the head of the thing or the snake comes in. So you're directing a real thing. And so the great thing about that is when you go into post, you can edit the whole sequence and he can sit there and go, that's what I want. But I wish it hissed a little earlier or maybe it should be a little further left in the screen. But they're details. you're, You're painting with a finer brush, you know, and we're taking the Vexus model or the snake model that Neil originally designed, but he could not actually build because there are many things in the world that you can't actually build. Um, and that becomes our thing. So it, it serves so many different ends. And of course, it seems a little extravagant, but in truth, the time that it saves you probably pays for all of that. And the fact that you can build that snake in digitally, and that cost is relatively small, actually, um, but you're only really finishing one thing. You're finishing the digital snake. You know, you're not having to worry about trying to make, you know, so that collaboration, I think, really gives you some of the best results. The, the, the other thing, interesting thing about animatronics, of course, is they're also benefiting from technology. So all of the little sensors and motors and all of the electronics, all of those things allow them to do better work. So if you put our, our favorite little character, Babu, you know, there's, there's an idea where you're, you're rod puppeting the body, you know, the general performance, but the, the tiny movements and the eyes and everything, that's all in, in, you know, those are tiny little motors and different things and blinks. But the great thing is, you know, as Neil said, the idea of then, it takes a tremendous amount of technology to then paint out the, the puppeteers. It, 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 but that's not what you, where you're looking, you know. Right. He always laughed that, you know, we were we were spending you know, more money painting out the puppeteers than we did on Babu because it was a <laughs> complicated thing to do. But, right. but you know, of course we weren't. But the the but the fun of it is that you end up with this thing that you can do. But there's a tremendous, you know, they, they and of course we can help eye blinks and we can maybe just put a little glint here or there. But it's that collaboration which gets you a better result on the screen, I think. But, you know, more important, I mean, well, and then you have Mars where we were really sharing that because, you know, I, I do think that the DNA of Star Wars is the puppet world, you know. Um, Mars, you know, the reason that we built Mars digitally was mainly because it was, it was a sort of a 
It's funny how that script, you know, JJ took that movie over and wrote the script pretty hastily. We just didn't have the time. And probably we didn't have the animatronic um, technology to build Mars at that point. But, you know, when we knew we were coming back and doing a movie with Mars in it, you know, Neil said, okay, we do actually have the time to build that. I mean, it was a limited puppet, you know, it obviously couldn't walk. And we actually, what we could do, we still had, you know, I mean, that's the amazing thing where you just go, okay, we didn't have to worry so much about its performance because although it was practically it was there, which means that everyone can act and the actor, everyone's talking to each other and you know your eye lines and all of that stuff, it could move fairly well on a, on a relatively limited basis, but it could move fairly well. But we could change its face digitally, you know, and there's shots in there, I think probably at least half the mouse shots, you know, you know, are, are the digital augmentation, but to a level where you, I bet you would never know. You would never, I've told you that, but you don't know that, you know, And because the guys, that Danielli in London and BG, I mean, they did such fantastic work, you know. I mean, they're, they're the, the, the splashy, incredible work that y'all did, the, the Carrie Fisher shots, obviously, the young Luke and Leia shots, obviously, and those have been getting a, a lot of press and a lot of, you talk about yeah. it so much. Is there anything, kind of to wrap it all up, is there anything from the sequel movies that you feel especially proud of that maybe you haven't been able to, to speak on as much or anything that, that you look back on now and, and really kind of have a warm feeling towards? Well, you know, I mean, what you're trying to do, obviously, you know, what I'm trying to do is is one interesting thing about the work and it's something that a lot of visual effects supervisors talk about amongst themselves, it's the consistency of the work, you know, it, it, and it's something that you want the, the movie to have a consistent quality to, to the work that you're putting into it. So I, I felt good about seven and nine about the, the consistency of the work. And of course, I, I've got to I've got to give a shout out to, you know, two people that I've worked with so much, you know, Pat Tuback and, and, and Paul Kavner and, and um, uh, Stacey Bissell and Luke O'Ban, all these people that, you know, um, that, that, you know, I've worked with, because there's just thousands of people that work on these movies. Okay, now, back to me. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, but, but, the, but, the, but the interesting thing to me is when you, can, you can, can combine that kind of, you can have art in, in drama in the way that you're, you're creating those shots. And I think in Nine, we were able to do that a few times. And I was really pleased with, I, I like, um, you know, when the Star Destroyers came out the ground, you know, where, you know, that that they were sort of almost art pieces, some of those shots to me. I wanted them to be more fragmented and abstract, and you don't often get a chance to to do that kind of work where you can be incredibly dramatic, you know, and, 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 and be a little bit more abstract about what the hell's going on. But in, in, in that moment in the movie, you know, it kind of worked. Um, maybe it didn't work for some people, but, um, I, I, I am, I am very proud of the work we did in seven and nine, you know, and, and I think the obvious things, you know, Nigel Sumner and his team, Nico and all the guys that did the water. I think the water is really, truly spectacular in, in time. And, you know, um, the work, I think, you know, could you describe the work that we did with Carrie, you know, as, I mean, it's a kind of a game changing idea, you know, and again, it was one of those ideas that came out of many conversations that we weren't going to do 
a digital version of her. Right. We were going to actually just build the shots around her face, and you kind of go, okay, you know, and 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 you know, you're knocking around these conversations because it's so, you know, again, we sort of reverse engineered that and took her face, and then just sort of went outwards from there because that was the part that we wanted to hang on to, and of course. She's basically a digital character except for her face, you know. But um, yeah, there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of things in these movies that um, they're all like your children, you know. That you know that you you because I I mean and, and it's an interesting thing because the spectacular shots, you know. If somebody said to me, "Oh, the shot, you know, the thing, and the whole thing explodes," and you know, and you're kind of going, "Okay, got that." Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's that's not the you know you, you of course it's not easy and and you know actually the Vancouver team on nine did this amazing shot where the star destroyer is piling into the ground you know fantastic absolutely amazing but in many ways those aren't the shots so much that um, really require a tremendous amount of, of of your thought it's the ones that are more mundane and you just go. How do you make that moment seem more special? Do you know what I mean? Like take the most mundane moment. How do you like this object or make the framing or do something to make this shot that has to be in the movie because you're conveying some piece of information? How do you make it more interesting to the audience? And those, I think, are the ones that you kind of, and they don't have to be hard, you know. I mean, and I, I mean that technically. I just mean that you have to, you have to go, okay, What's the idea, you know? And that that's that's all I think the fun of often, you know, these movies, that there's always a handful of those kinds of moments as well. And and, and the consistency is a big thing. But, you know, we were blessed with some mighty talent on Nine, for sure, you know? Well, uh, Mr. Gatt, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I really appreciate it. This was uh, such a treat. Um, thank you so much. Oh, please. Absolute pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thank you again to Mr. Guillette for this incredible interview and giving so much of his time and stories for this episode. I'm really still getting over being able to interview him and I hope you all enjoyed it. Next week's episode is a real showstopper with Return of the Jedi editor and the original, original Boba Fett, Dwayne Dunham. So stay tuned, get ready for me to gush about Twin Peaks, leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you.